here which comes very close to a constitutional crisis we have the House of Representatives with documents showing that Comey and his deputies and other people including the Attorney General committed crimes Africa in particular and people of African descent more specifically owe an enormous debt of gratitude to socialist Cuba and there's no better time to acknowledge that than today. The DC Reinvest Coalition came together over a year ago to encourage DC to pull its money out of Wells Fargo, which invests in private prisons, in fossil fuel companies, and in racist lending practices. And we want our money to be invested in our communities in a way that makes things good. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and on today's show, former CIA officer turned peace activist Ray McGovern on what's really happening in Syria, what Russiagate is really about, and breaking news about all the palace intrigue, chaos, positioning, spinning, and plotting. D.C. has its very own Game of Thrones up in here, it feels like sometimes, right? And of course, Gerald Horn joins us to break down international news. As always, we have a jam-packed show for you, starting with our headlines. In response to Israel's massacre of Palestinians at peaceful protests held since March 30th, at least some members of Congress have stepped forward and signed a joint statement condemning Israel for killing dozens and injuring hundreds at the border of Gaza. Five House Democrats, Mark Pocan of Wisconsin, Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, Barbara Lee of California, Hank Johnson of Georgia, and Keith Ellison of Minnesota, said in the statement that, quote, We urge Israeli soldiers to refrain from shooting live ammunition at unarmed Palestinian protesters from hundreds of meters away across the fence separating the two territories. The statement went on to say, quote, We strongly reject the dangerous contention made on April 8th by Israeli Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman that, quote, there are no innocent people in the Gaza Strip. Media reports suggest that on Friday, Israeli soldiers will once again be ordered by high command in contravention of international law to engage in sniper fire on Gaza residents who come within 300 meters of the border fence or engage in other non-life-threatening actions. We applaud Israeli human rights groups that are calling on Israeli soldiers to resist such illegal orders from their superiors and are urging IDF forces to fully comply with international law and exercise utmost restraint in their use of deadly force. Such measures must only be used as a last resort to stop an imminent threat to life. End quote. Before this joint statement, Senator Bernie Sanders, along with Representative Barbara Lee and Representative Betty McCollum, Democrat of Minnesota, had tweeted a condemnation of the slaughter. 
But the failure of more members of Congress to speak out on these attacks by Israel, which receives billions of dollars annually in taxpayer funds, drew peace activist Code Pink to visit Capitol Hill on Tuesday, April 17th. Medea Benjamin was among those who occupied the office of Maryland Representative Jamie Raskin, where Benjamin spoke to aides about the impact of public officials speaking out or not speaking out against the slaughter of peaceful protesters. They have been killing fewer people each week because the international yes. community has been speaking out. Yes. I mean, if you want to see uh, outrage, look at what the European members of, of Parliament and their countries have done. And so all of this is a restraining factor on the Israeli government. The fourth Friday of protest in the Great March of Return is today, Friday, April 20th, when Thousands of Palestinians are again expected to protest at the border of Gaza, which is described as an open-air prison that has been deemed unfit for human habitation, with limited access to water, food, electricity, medical care, jobs, or traditional farmland. Meanwhile, the illegal missile strike on Syria by the United States, the UK, and France has led to more scrutiny by Congress of the president's ability to take such a unilateral military action. As we have been discussing on this show, the U.S. Constitution gives Congress and not the president the power to declare war, but Congress has not been exercising this power. And every president since George W. Bush has been using the 2001 Authorization for the Use of Military Force, or AUMF, passed by Congress after the attacks of September 11, 2001. That authorization, though limited in scope to be used against those believed to have attacked the U.S. on that day, has been used dozens of times since to attack countries, regions, communities, and individuals who had nothing to do with 9-11. Representative Barbara Lee, the only member of Congress to vote against the 2001 authorization, said this week that a new proposal by Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee and Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia will actually extend the president's power to wage unending war. Lee is also leading a bipartisan effort to address the AUMF and chaired a hearing on the issue at the end of February. This hearing couldn't be timelier. Just last week, the Trump administration claimed that it really needs no legal authority from Congress to indefinitely keep American military forces in Syria and Iraq. And this is in the territory, of course, where ISIS is no longer considered a threat. And that's why today uh, we sent a letter to Speaker Ryan with over 100 co-signers urging a debate and vote on an AUMF for Syria. We cannot afford to wait any longer while these wars expand. For too long, Congress has ignored our duties on these ongoing wars. Now, an updated 2018 Congressional Research Service report documenting the unclassified uses of the 2001 AUMF shows that it has been cited 41 times in 18 different countries since it came on the books. Now, in 2016, the report showed 37 citations in 15 different countries. Clearly, this is a huge problem, and it's only getting worse. This report only looked at the unclassified uses. How many other times has it been used without the knowledge of Congress or the American people? Senator Corker told reporters that he wants the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to take up his measure within the next two weeks. But skeptics said that a hearing on it should be held first. 
And as these conflicts using American weapons are raging, this week was also tax time and peace mobilizations reminded Americans that depending on how it's calculated, up to 53% of each of our tax dollars goes to military or war-related costs. Lindsay Koshgarian of the National Priorities Organization posted in a blog this week that the average taxpayer contributed $3,456 to the military in 2017 compared to $80 that went to welfare programs and just $39 to the Environmental Protection Agency. And whether it is tax dollars for wars by the U.S., wars by U.S. allies, or our tax dollars going to banks, more people in the U.S. are taking back power over how their money is spent. In D.C. this week, there was a hearing on the grassroots movement to divest the district's money from Wells Fargo, which is the main investor in the Dakota Access and Keystone XL pipelines. The bank is also a major investor in private prisons and the NRA. And Wells Fargo has a documented history of racist lending practices and is embroiled in scandals, including the creation of fraudulent accounts. On Wednesday, D.C.'s chief financial officer, Jeffrey DeWitt, testified that he was not opposed to moving the district's banking contracts away from Wells Fargo when the district's current contract with the bank expires. His testimony came after dozens of D.C. residents rallied and testified at the Wilson Building to call on Councilmember Jack Evans, chair of the Committee on Finance and Revenue, to request a public hearing for the measure. Yari Greeny, a D.C. reinvest organizer, led a rally outside the hearing. What the D.C. Reinvest Coalition really wants to emphasize is that once we divest from Wells Fargo, we're not done. Because we want our money to be reinvested here in ways that will meaningfully benefit the citizens of D.C. Big round of applause for the D.C. Reinvest Coalition and divesting from Wells Fargo! Seattle, Los Angeles, and other cities have already cut ties with Wells Fargo over its controversial investments and bad business practices. And finally, in culture and media, the Split This Rock Poetry Festival is underway in D.C. through Sunday, April 22nd. More information is at splitthisrock.org. And Black Star, that duo of Talib Kweli and Yasin Bey, formerly known as Most Deaf, are in concert in D.C. tonight, April 20th, on what is sort of a reunion tour after years of not making new music together or touring in the United States. They have upcoming dates in France in July and in Morrison, Colorado on July 31st. And Earth Day is Sunday, April 22nd. Do something in your life for our common home. And those are our headlines and happenings. Gerald Horn joins us when we come back. Stay with us. Free 
your brother, put his sister down the street, you know, soldier Attica again. In the spirit of Harriet Tubman, the son of Shakur, let's see, this move is organized to be free. That is struggle, that'll win. Power to be free. Free of all. To be free, to be free, to be free, to be free, to be free. Now for more international news, I'm joined by on the grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, the strike on Syria is still reverberating here in D.C., and I understand that Robert Fisk produced a new report questioning the alleged chemical attack. Well, as you know, Robert Fisk, the well-known reporter from the Independent of London, has been known for years now as one of the more reliable sources when it comes to on-the-ground reporting in that part of the world. And his latest report, just out from the Independent, raises uh, searching and grave questions as to whether or not a chemical attack took place. And in any case, I'm sure you're familiar with the other stories that suggest that there may have been a chemical attack, but it may have been executed by the rebels. And this purportedly was not the first time that particular gambit has been deployed. Also, in the Thursday, April 19th, the Wall Street Journal, there was a huge story on the growth of an al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. The implication of that story is that when Mr. Trump executed this missile attack on Syria, he was weakening the Damascus-based regime, which has been fighting this al-Qaeda affiliate, and thereby, in some ways, has served objectively as the Air Force for so-called terrorists, at least terrorists in the eyes of Washington. Wow. So the other story that caught my eye this week about Syria is the idea that Eric Prince of Blackwater, I don't say fame or disrepute, <laughs> the brother of Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, but also who is basically still involved in this kind of paramilitary business, it has been approached by certain Arab countries to perhaps develop uh, an occupying army for Syria to replace U.S. troops. Well, there have been all sorts of stories in that regard. A Common Dreams has been a source for this story that Eric Prince, a Blackwater disrepute, as you put it, has been talking about trying to put together a mercenary force to replace the 2,000-odd U.S. troops now on the ground in Syria. Eric Prince also floated the idea some months ago of doing the same thing in Afghanistan, that is to say, putting together a mercenary force to replace U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Keep in mind as well that reportedly the Trump administration is reaching out to Egypt, reaching out to Saudi Arabia as a funding source for putting Egyptian 
forces on the ground in Syria to serve the aims of U.S. imperialism, I dare say that none of these particular plans and projections hopefully will take flight. Well, I suppose that some of these issues or plans will be on the agenda next week when Trump meets with Angela Merkel of Germany and Macron of France. You have some insights into what else might be discussed? Well, Germany is balking at this idea of putting added sanctions on Russia, not least because German corporations are so heavily tied up in Russia in terms of investments. Likewise, Mr. Macron and certain forces in Berlin are seized with this idea that they should unite with the United States in this transatlantic trade partnership, which is the kind of a kind of Atlantic version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Mr. Trump has been wavering on in recent days and weeks. Put simply and perhaps crudely, the idea is to have an entente or understanding with Moscow so that the European Union and the United States can better gang up on China, which is seen as the major threat to the hegemony and domination of the North Atlantic powers. The problem, as you know, is that Mr. Trump is under so much pressure from the Democrats because of his real and imagined ties to Moscow, it's going to be very difficult for him to sign on to this Macron-Merkel plan. And in any case, I think the contrast and how these two leaders will be treated will also send a message. That is to say, I understand that Mr. Macron will get a state dinner. I'll be surprised if Chancellor Merkel even gets a box lunch from the White House. Obviously, what Mr. Trump is trying to do is drive a wedge into the European Union, being nice to France and being not so nice to Germany. Uh, let's see if Berlin and Paris are able to figure out what's going on. Hmm. Well, you mentioned common dreams earlier, and uh, I also saw on that website that North and South Korea are reportedly in talks to officially end the Korean War. Well, Yes. Um, even Mr. Trump has mentioned that in passing in his press conference with Prime Minister Abe of Japan. Traditionally, the line from Tokyo, and to a certain degree, certain forces in China too, is that they like Korea so much that they prefer two Koreas rather than one. And so the idea that North and South Korea may be edging closer together, possibly as a prelude to a kind of confederation, will not go down very well in Tokyo because of the historic animosity on the Korean peninsula towards Japan because of its brutal colonial rule between 1910 and 1935. It's such maneuvers as this that is leading to what might possibly be a geopolitical earthquake. I'm speaking to the fact that just in the last few days, you've had top-level meetings between the leaderships of China and Japan. This could be a game changer given the historic tension that has gripped relations between these two countries, not least because of the depredations committed by the Japanese military in China during World War II. And Japan is also upset with the fact that Mr. Trump, when he eased steel tariffs on U.S. allies, particularly the European allies and Canada, he did not ease steel tariffs on Japan. And so uh, Japan is now uh, exploring other options. 
and exploring the option of tightening relations with China uh, could be highly profound and significant. Yeah, I mean, it's as if the whole area that we call Asia has been manipulated and cut off and played with by the United States and other Western powers, you know, through war, colonialism, and perhaps what you're talking about is pan-Asian unity. That's possible. I mean, uh, keep in mind that that was the original idea in Tokyo at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Things did not evolve in that direction, not least because of World War II. But once again, the maladroit maneuvering of Donald J. Trump seems to be driving old antagonists into each other's arms. And let's hope that that trend continues. Well, and finally, in this hemisphere, there's an important change of the guard occurring. And I guess very important for the left and progressive socialist uh, communities worldwide. That, of course, is a stepping down or stepping aside of Raul Castro as president of Cuba, uh, basically putting to the side almost 60 years of rule in Havana by the Castro brothers, Fidel and Raul. And the rising of a newer generation, uh, Diaz-Canal, is the designated successor, although Raul will remain as head of the Communist Party and head of the armed forces. I think it's well past time for a kind of homage uh, to Castro rule and Havana. When we think of socialist Cuba, we think, number one, of doctors, the fact that many people in the Caribbean and in Africa in particular are heavily dependent upon Cuban nurses and healthcare workers and doctors for basic kind of healthcare. We recall that when the Ebola epidemic erupted in West Africa a few years ago, there were Cuban medics who were on the ground in the front lines performing yeoman service in that regard. And then secondly, we think of Cuban soldiers. Uh, it's difficult to imagine the liberation of Southern Africa without the participation of the Cuban military, first of all, in helping to beat back the apartheid invasion of Angola in 1975, which paved the way for the liberation of Namibia in 1990. And the fact that Cuban forces were in the southern cone of Africa, and there were always these rumors that they would forcibly eject the racists from ruling in what is now Zimbabwe and also from Pretoria, uh, that helped the racists to realize that their shelf life was expiring and convinced them to negotiate more reasonably. So I think that Africa in particular and people of African descent more specifically owe an enormous debt of gratitude to socialist Cuba, and there's no better time to acknowledge that than today. Well, viva Cuba. Here's to the island nation that won its revolution, gave around the world, and withstood American imperialism. Hear, hear. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. He's actually going to be in Washington, D.C. Saturday, April 21st at Sankofa Video Books and Cafe. That's on Georgia Avenue, right across the street from Howard University. Thank you so much for joining us, Gerald. Yes, I'll see you folks at 3 o'clock at Sankofa Bookstore on Georgia Avenue. Thank you very much.
you're just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everam, and joining me for the april 2018 episode of the f word is ray mcgovern a former cia analyst turned social justice activist who co-created veteran intelligence professionals for sanity to expose how intelligence was being falsified to justify war on iraq he's an outspoken member of the peace and anti-war movement who we last saw at a protest outside the Embassy of Israel this month. Welcome back to the show, Ray. Thanks, Esther. Glad to be back with you. Well, first, these effort segments on fascism explore state violence and repression, and they explore how the role of the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. So right now, with Palestinians and Yemenis being massacred and Syria being illegally attacked with weapons created by U.S. corporations and paid for by U.S. tax dollars, in essence, tell me about your impressions about where we are in terms of U.S. foreign policy being dictated by the military-industrial complex. And is that different from saying that it is being dictated by the so-called deep state or permanent government in agencies like the CIA and NSA? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's all of the above. It's the military-industrial complex. It's the people who are running what we refer to as the deep state. I like to uh, cite a, a, a word that Pope Francis used when he was talking to Congress here uh, two and a half years ago. He stood up and he said, quote, The main problem is the blood-drenched arms traders, end hmm. quote. Whoa. <laughs> now, what happened? If you watched it, all those senators and representatives got up and they applauded almost as if he were as sacred as Netanyahu almost. And they, they applauded. And, and then if you looked real closely, in my mind's eye, I could see them looking into their uh, pockets of their jackets, see if the, the envelope from Lockheed on the left uh, and whether the one from Raytheon on the left were still there. I mean, it was giving hypocrisy a bad name. But these are major cogs in the military-industrial congressional complex. Now, when I say congressional, that's not McGovern. Uh, That was Eisenhower. Uh, Some people don't know that the original draft of his uh, farewell address there had military-industrial congressional complex. (laughs) And he was dissuaded. Oh, it's bad enough you're saying military-industrial. You want to get you going to safely out of here, back to Kansas? Don't say congressional, my God. So he didn't. But right now, it's the military, industrial, congressional, deep state, which I mean FBI, CIA, people who are controlling a lot of things in Washington, and last but not least, the media. The media is playing an incredible role. The, The mainstream media the one that I never get on, and that's why I'm delighted to be back with you here to see these things. 
And I don't want you to lose your train of thought, but I do notice that. And and actually, I'm very disgusted by even what is so-called progressive media, that they don't have people like you on. And it seems that many of the people that are considered progressive media, they're very close to just parroting the line of the State Department. Well, you know, yeah, not only the State Department, but CNN and MSNBC. I will share out loud uh, my disillusionment with exactly what you just described. How many years has it been since I've been on Democracy Now? Whoa, it's a couple. Now, why is that? Well, I don't say the, the right things about Syria, and I don't say the right things about the military-industrial complex or about this Russiagate thing. It is really, really sad to see that happen, and I can't explain it other than to speculate that the HWHW virus uh, is still very much alive in Washington and New York. What is that? <laughs> that that's the HWHW virus. Oh, that's the Hillary would have won virus. See? It, right. It it, there is, uh, you know, it's PTSD, really. I mean, people are still living in shock. I mean, <laughs> the New York Times, the day of the election in the morning, well, 83% she was going to win by. And it was just really ridiculous. So the shock was very real. And I, I sympathize particularly with, with women who think that this Trump is a, the most loathsome creature that ever existed. I sympathize with that. Oh, my God. You know, you have to face reality. When you really see the people who they book, who they do book, they all they all book people who who do not take an anti-imperialist lens on Syria and they are pushing for regime change. And I even heard one interview this week where the person was basically saying, decrying that the other side was being called terrorists. So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it was pretty extreme as far as I could tell. It was very incoherent and, and I was very disturbed. But I don't want us to get off the, to the track, too far off track with that. We're saying the same thing here, I think. Uh, you know, when you have um, democracy now praising the white helmets, which yeah. really is the PR outfit for Al-Qaeda, for God's sake, you know, right. funded by the West. and they, you know. So, you know, it's really kind of sad. Now, I, I have the highest admiration for the coverage of domestic uh, events, and I really like to keep up with, uh, you know, what they, what they cover because no, no one else covers a lot of those things. But they really should hire some people who know something about foreign affairs and get more balanced coverage. So with respect to the uh, military industrial complex, you can't understand why we would be so cozy with uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, which is a uh, rebel regime uh, wreaking havoc on Yemen, where a million people, count them, a million people have cholera now. My God! And who gives them the, the wherewithal to do that? The U.S. of A. We do our tax dollars, and we just paid our taxes. Well, fifty percent of each dollar goes to what they call defense, but it's really a military-industrial complex. So that's part of it. Now, the other part, you know, if you want to understand Syria, and even some of my friends, you know, kind of stroke their chin, say, "Gosh, you know, how do you, why, why, why is the U.S. doing what they do in Syria?" Well. 
I have a, a favorite citation that I like to use. It's, it's from the New York Times of, of all places. And it goes back almost five years when the first so-called sarin attack by Bashar al-Assad happened uh, outside of Damascus in Ghouta on the 21st of August 2013. And that was blamed on uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, but it wasn't Assad. We know it was uh, sarin, homemade sarin, brought in there by uh, Turkish people who, who got it from, from Europe. So we know that that's what happened. So anyhow, what was going on at the time uh, led the uh, New York Times bureau chief, Jody Ruderin, uh, to go seek out Israeli uh, leaders and ask them, you know, well, how about Israel? How do you look at Syria? Well, what's your preferred outcome? And they took her aside. She was sort of new in the job. And they said, now, Jody, this doesn't sound very, uh, very humanitarian, but our preferred outcome in Syria is no outcome. Right. <laughs> she said, I, I, I beg your pardon? I, could you explain that? Well, this is a quote from her article in the New York Times, September 6, 2013. Quote, this is what my uh, interlocutors said, including Alon Pinkas, the former Israeli consul general in New York. Quote, now this is a playoff situation in which you need both teams to lose, but at least you don't want one to win. We'll settle for a tie. Let them both bleed. Let them hemorrhage to death. That's the strategic thinking here. As long as this lingers, there's no real threat from Syria to Israel. Well, right. well, hello, it's been going on for seven years now. Now, every time Bashar al-Assad starts to win, as he did back in August of 2013, as he was almost doing last year at this time, and as he's doing now, almost one, guess what happens? There's a false flag chemical attack blamed on him, and the U.S., under Trump at least, gets militarily involved. Now, from the Israeli perspective, once the U.S. is militarily involved, no problem. We're not going to lose. We can make it, well, Bashar al-Assad, he's not going to lose either. But, hey, as long as there's chaos, as long as there's chaos in Syria, we have nothing to fear from them. And the other thing is they won't be able to resupply Hezbollah in southern Lebanon uh, through Syria. And that's how they traditionally, uh, the Iranians and others, gave them the necessary arms, mostly to resist attacks from Israel. Now, if you have chaos in Syria, it's really, really hard to get those arms deliveries to Lebanon. So Israel is running this policy, and if Americans want to understand what's going on and why the U.S. Uh, would be so deeply involved uh, and, you know, participating in these false flag explanations, well, it, you know, the simple explanation is that Bibi Netanyahu has more influence on people like Donald Trump than virtually anyone. Now, the term military-industrial complex, it's really powerful, and it's a really powerful idea that those of us, you know, on the left, you know, really use, but it can be abstract also. So in today's world, like, who do you see as the main corporate actors, and who are the main state actors, and how do they intersect? You know, I know one intersection is that I see these former Pentagon officials or whoever on CNN or MSNBC, and actually, it's been pointed out that they're actually on the board 
boards of these some of these corporations or they're really connected with these raw profiteers and and also MSNBC uh, owner I think G is a main weapons dealer manufacturer right and by the way I have to say that according to fortune after the last serious strike nearly five billion dollars was added to the stock of the missile maker Raytheon it's this lucrative stuff you have a pretty corrupt situation here so let's take uh, MSNBC for example now a couple of years ago when I checked the GE had given up its majority share in MSNBC and now only has 49%. Now, what does GE make? Well, you make a lot of jet engines, they make a lot of armaments and so forth. And so, let's say MSNBC's business area, let's say the news segment is, mm, I guess, maybe 10%. Okay? Now, if you're selling, if you're selling jet engines for fighter aircraft uh, with, uh, with a preponderance of your business areas, what kind of attention are you going to give to your news area? And are you going to be, are you going to let people on like me uh, who might say that, you know, peace is a lot better than selling arms? I mean, peace is bad for business, bad for business, Esther. Uh, you know, tension, almost war with the Russians, nothing could be more lucrative. The Saudis, same there. There was a report this week, actually, that Donald Trump has become the main weapons salesman for the U.S. And they pointed to his recent visit with Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and holding up the chart and bragging about how much Saudi Arabia was buying from us in billions and billions of dollars. So. Well, he's been acting as a closer of deals. Some of the them closer. are, you know, they, they, they sort of linger and he, he calls up the CEO of this or that country, <laughs> shakes so-and-so and says, hey, all right, let's close this deal. And they close it. And billions and billions of dollars go. Now, Eisenhower also said that every ship made or, or every, you know, fighter, every bullet actually deprives children in this country of nourishment that they need. And that's right. true in spades right now. So sooner or later, I hope that the American people will realize that these people who are making 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year for manufacturing and selling arms, well, they're pretty much... Uh, well, what's, what's the word? They're exploiting people in this country who need the kind of help that they need. And so we know who they are. We know where they live. So why don't we have the courage to go and face down the head of Lockheed? Surround his house. Go to his neighborhood. Have, have some signs and say, look, $20 million is much too much. Uh, you, shouldn't be, you shouldn't be earning this. In other words, we know what's happening the gap that I see, the unfortunate gap, is between a willingness to go out and put our bodies into it, as we did in Vietnam, uh, as opposed to just saying, oh, gosh, you know, the military industrial complex. So we know these people have names. <laughs> they, they live in our neighborhoods. Uh, they live in North Arlington and the Bethesda and Potomac. We know. <laughs> so my, my deal is, you know, once you get, I work, as you know, at, uh, um, near 16th Street, and, you know, once you go across the Rock Creek Park, well, you know, it's a different sort of complexion, and we have to be able to do that, go across, across the Rock Creek Park, and uh, wend our way uh, to the 
to the CEOs of these these uh, blood-sucking corporations making weapons that kill other people and uh, just kind of show uh, the country that mm. we, we care about these things. We care enough uh, to be out there with our bodies. On that note, we're going to take a brief break. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. We'll be right back. Ain't nobody This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with former CIA analyst turned political activist Ray McGovern. And before the break, we were talking about recognizing and confronting war profiteers. Right now, we're in the period of the global days against military spending. And, you know, we just had some headlines earlier in the show about how much each American taxpayer was paying toward these war profiteers. And compare that to how much of our tax dollars are going to like education or the EPA or healthcare. So the amount that they just added to the Pentagon's budget or to military spending is far beyond what it would cost to give every college student a free public education, you know, or what Bernie Sanders was proposing in terms of a free tuition for a public college. That's exactly right. And uh, that's why I think Bernie was so popular and why uh, Hillary, um, and this is documented in her emails, I cheated him out of the Democratic nomination. It's clear as a bell. And who was she supported by? Well, the same people, Wall Street and the arms manufacturers and traders. Uh, So it's really very incestuous. It's very corrupt. The situation and uh, you know we, we can't just sit around and complain about it we need to do something about it and um, I'm not saying anything violent of course but there are enough of us you know there really are enough of us and uh, if we get out there and, and demonstrate and show that we think the system is crooked and that the 51 cents out of every dollar I pay in taxes should not go to defend that, that increment that was $80 billion in the defense budget, that's more money than Russia spends. Right. Total. total. You know, you mentioned Hillary Clinton and that campaign, and I want to make sure before we close that we, we spend some time talking about Russiagate. And it occurs to me that the same lack of evidence used to justify this latest attack on Syria is the same lack of evidence strategy used in this so-called Russiagate investigation. Where does that stand for you when you look at it? Well, it's a, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Up in the Bronx, where I come from, we call it a crock, okay? It's all made up, all of it. And uh, it started out with this legend about Russia hacking into, well, into the Democratic National Committee systems. Now, we have people in our movement, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, 
who have been previous technical directors at the National Security Agency, the NSA, and they've evaluated all this information. Now, NSA collects everything, okay? Everything. It boggles the mind, but they collect everything. So, if there was a hack, ipso facto, NSA would know about it. And with all the pressure to show some proof there was a hack, you can bet your bottom dollar they would do so. So, that's negative evidence, absence of evidence. Okay, now, Rumsfeld, who went to Princeton, of course, was real smart, and he said, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In other words, you remember? In other words, if uh, we have no evidence that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, that doesn't mean that they don't have them. Okay, so that's the logic to that. Now, we went with that uh, in our in our little group, uh, and so we found out that people had done forensic forensic research on one of the celebrated quote hacks end quote that turned out not to be a hack. And we could prove it not to be a hack by physics, by the principle of fluid dynamics. And it's really, really simple. We knew the capability of the Internet on the 5th of July, 2016. Now, the event that was advertised as a Russian hack turned out to be a download onto a thumb drive by someone with direct access to the DNC. How do we know that? because the Internet could not have downloaded it at the speed with which it was put on that thumb drive. How do we know that? Well, because it was exactly the same speed, three times the speed that the Internet could tolerate. It was exactly the same speed as a download, as a copy onto a thumb drive. So the way this got to Julian Assange was from somebody within the DNC. Now, was that popular? Was that we allowed to say that? Well, uh, by some miracle, we got that story into the Nation magazine, okay? And uh, the inter interesting thing there is that was the Nation magazine is populated by people really strongly infected by the HW, HW virus. In other words, Hillary would have won. It could be that Hillary was a terrible candidate. It must be the Russians, okay? And so there was a big debate there, and they scarfed up some people who took issue with our two technical directors, former from NSA, and there was no evidence, but they manufactured this debate, uh, which uh, was ludicrous on its on its face. But it helped the, the editors and publishers of the nation not to lose their big contributors uh, because they published something that was askew, that was not aligned with the Russians cheated Hillary. It couldn't have been Hillary herself. So now it's this initial leak of evidence has led to this Mueller investigation and to where we are now. And now the investigation is very far afield from any type of, of collusion as far as the Trump campaign. It seems to be into other matters, uh, obstruction of justice. It's a wide open investigation that can lead anywhere. We're certainly not Trump apologists or defenders here, but where do you think it stands now? And what is the end game here? Well, you're right about the uh, current status of the investigation. Now, Mueller's been at it, what, for almost a year now? And the best he can do is to come up with uh, 
extraneous charges against people like uh, Manafort and uh, people, other people. Now, the, the lawyer, uh, Trump's lawyer. Now, what's the game there? The game there is that these guys are crooks. I mean, let's face it, they're all crooks, Manafort, uh, uh, Cohen. Uh, you know, the FBI has the book on them. They know about money laundering. They know about all kinds of stuff that's just usually winked at in Wall Street and up there in New York. So they know all that. So they get this guy Cohen, and they say, now, now Mr. Cohen, you know, we have enough evidence to put you away for 35 years, but, uh, you know, don't you remember, don't you remember Trump telling you about colluding with the Russians? You know, if you could remember that, that would be very helpful. As a matter of fact, uh, six months suspended sentence, if you could, if we can reduce those charges. So that's what they're doing, you know. It's really despicable. And the problem is that Trump says in an indirect way, well, don't worry, you guys. Don't rat on me. Uh, don't make up stuff because I'll pardon you if you get sent away to prison. So it's really quite bad. Now, the new information as of yesterday, but you won't find it in the Washington Post. You won't find it in the New York Times. I've just written it up. It'll appear on Consortium News. But here it is. There's been a criminal referral. Okay, a criminal referral by 11 members of the House of Representatives. A referral of Comey, of Mrs. Clinton, of former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, uh, Deputy or Acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe, this Peter Strzok, and Lisa Page, uh, who had a, a little, little dalliance and uh, exchanged emails uh, at great length. And the people in the Department of Justice and the FBI who worked on the so-called Steele dossier and had a role in giving that to the court to justify that rubbish. In other words, use that rubbish to justify illegal eavesdropping on some of Trump's people. Now, that's a formal criminal referral. It went to the Department of Justice and to the FBI yesterday, and nobody knows about it. <laughs> nobody knows about it unless you read the Washington Times, okay? It's not in the New York Times, not in the Washington Post. They're waiting for instructions. How do we handle this? My God! Criminal referral? Jail time? Well, it will be handled as just a partisan uh, move because of Comey's book tour. Uh, it'll, it'll be handled that way. And unfortunately, that's where we are here in Washington in terms of this investigation and everything happening. Because anything that is done to question the dominant narrative is seen as just uh, an attempt to defend Trump. Esther, that's what normally happens, okay? And, uh, you know, I, I'm a betting man. I, I couldn't bet against that. But the new element here is a very courageous chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes. And uh, he set up an interview in which he had himself asked, well, what about these people? Could they go to jail? He said, if they're guilty, they could go to trial. Yes. So what we have is a, a situation here which comes very close to a constitutional uh, crisis. We have the House of Representatives uh, with documents showing that Comey and his deputies and other people, including the Attorney General Loretta Lynch, 
committed crimes. Now, you don't have a crime referral unless there's good evidence that they committed crimes. Now, the big question that Americans don't understand is how they possibly could have thought they get away with it. Well, that's easy, okay? And Comey says it in his book, we all expected Hillary to win. Now, you know, if Hillary's going to win, is she going to hold us accountable for helping us, helping her to win? Give me a break. So we'll be immune. We'll be scot-free. Uh, she's a shoe-in. And Comey says that in his book. He, he explains that as the environment in which he made these decisions, okay? Now, my God, she lost. <laughs> now, documents show what these guys have done. And a courageous head of the House Intelligence Committee, supported by other committees in the House, are taking their constitutional prerogative seriously. So I'm not so sure that Comey will be able to obfuscate this thing with his book. It's a preemptive thing that he's doing, but they have the documents. And this is going to be really, this is, I have to say, I read every word in the Washington Post about Watergate. I'm reading everything, every word now, and I think this is just as exciting as Watergate because if these guys get away with this stuff, then Deep State has won a big, big battle against Congress and against our constitutional system. Wow. Just one other question. I, I know it may be opening a can of worms at the time that I need to, to fin- close out the interview is that there's so much happening. It almost feels like organized chaos. And I heard one commentator talk about like there must be a whiteboard somewhere where somebody is drawing lines between all these different conflicts and it's the organized chaos or the chaos theory. So what do you think about that? I've often thought that Trump doesn't even write his own tweets, you know, because they're too strategic and they're too much contributing to the chaos to be organized and written by him. So what do you, what do you think about that? Is there a whiteboard somewhere in DC and so, and who's writing on it? Well, what I focus on is trying to understand uh, what all these things mean. And I have to tell you that the website that I write for, consortiumnews.com, has an incredible record of following uh, these developments for over a year now. And this article that I'm putting up, consortiumnews.com, has uh, the equivalent of a bibliography at the bottom where you can just click on a link and learn how it was that we learned that Clinton's campaign paid, paid, for the steel dossier and how people reacted to that. Our record is, uh, is superlative on this issue and uh, it does take an awful lot of uh, pouring through and trying to understand, but we have made it as simple as possible given the fact that the whiteboard, so to speak, is pretty <laughs> complicated and the lines go all over the place. Let me give my condolences on the passing of Robert Perry, founder of Consortium News and just a tremendous journalist and really an inspiration to so many of us who have been really forced to ply our trade outside the mainstream media because we want to tell a different story, tell the truth or tell a narrative that is not in keeping with the mainstream narrative or the corporate media. That's right. Yeah, he's a he's a real model for the rest of us, and uh, he taught me a lot about journalism. I knew a lot about intelligence and analysis, but uh, journalism is a little bit more rigorous in many ways. 
Well, I want to thank my guest, Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst turned social justice activist who co-created Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity to expose how intelligence was being falsified to justify war on Iraq. He's an outspoken member of the peace and anti-war movement who, as I mentioned earlier, we just saw at a protest outside the embassy of Israel this month. Thank you for joining me, Ray. You're most welcome, Mr. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank again my guests, Gerald Horn and Ray McGovern. The music we played this hour included Black Star performing Umi Says live in Brooklyn and Kosi Sikale Africa featuring Silama Mafangwane and The Prelude to Feel by Kendrick Lamar, who won the Pulitzer Prize for music this week. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam asking you to join me this Earth Day, April 22nd, and all the days that follow during Earth Week in doing one new thing to help keep our planet habitable for humans to reduce your carbon footprint, to reduce, reuse, and recycle. On April 28th at 3 p.m., I'll be at Sankofa Video Books and Cafe on Georgia Avenue in Northwest D.C. with my Olokun of the Galaxy Project, which is about honoring Earth's oceans and water. I'd love to see you there. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace.